Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Over the holidays, I traveled home to California to spend time with my family. Family time is so precious these days, not just because I now live and work on the other side of the country, but because of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, which limited all of last year's holiday gatherings to virtual spaces. But this year, thanks to the development of several highly effective COVID vaccines in conjunction with the use of rapid at-home COVID antigen tests, I was able to visit my fully vaccinated and boosted family in person. To celebrate vaccines, these marvelous and ingenious scientific accomplishments, and to ring in the new year, I decided to ask my medical student brother, John Wong, to do a podcast episode about vaccines and Star Trek while we were both at home. This is John's third appearance on Strange New Worlds. You can hear him talk about medical ethics on episode 94 and the science of nutrition on episode 36. And if you're interested in learning more about viruses, I also encourage you to visit episode 96, where Aditi Narayanan and Stuart Bartlett talk about the roles that viruses play in the biosphere as a whole. For today's conversation, John and I rewatched a Deep Space Nine episode called The Quickening, where Dr. Julian Bashir takes on the Sisyphean task of developing a vaccine against a deadly virus called the Blight, placing the fate of an entire world on his shoulders. In our discussion, John will break down the science behind Dr. Bashir's medical investigation of the Blight virus. He'll also tell us about how vaccines work and share with us what it's been like for him to meet with patients who are hesitant about taking the COVID vaccine. We want to preface this conversation by saying that John is not a vaccine researcher himself. As new developments arise and we learn more about novel viruses, information and best practices can change. That's just how science works. So, for the most up-to-date information on COVID-19, you should look to the guidelines offered by official agencies, seek out peer-reviewed studies by medical scientists, and talk to your doctor if you have any questions or concerns about your own health. That disclaimer aside, John knows way more than I do about everything related to viruses, vaccines, and medical practices. So without further ado, let's go. Hi, John. Hi, Mike. 
Last time you were on this podcast, it was just before you started your grand adventure of medical school <laughs> at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Today, you are now three-eighths of the way done. <laughs> You've done three semesters of the total eight that you'll spend there, four years, essentially, mm -hmm. in med school. Um, which means also that you've spent basically the entire time of your med school career in the midst of a global pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is like? Yeah, it has definitely been challenging for me, like I imagine a lot of people going through these times. Um, you know, I think just starting school, starting a new program, um, you know, in a new city, in a new state, in the middle of the pandemic, it presents a lot of challenges. Not being able to kind of meet your classmates, um, which I know talking to other people who have started school at the same time, whether it be like undergrad or even high school, you know, that's definitely a challenging part of it. But, um, you know, I think things are getting a little better now. My second year has definitely been better. I know some of my classmates and, you know, seems like most folks are vaccinated and uh, boosted. So, you know, it's been uh, a little bit better in terms of like being able to socialize and see people in person. So that's been nice. When I went to grad school to get my PhD, when I when I started there, I was like so excited to embark on this journey of learning. And I imagine the same is for you. You know, you're starting this thing. You're going to learn so much about how to help people live healthy lives but also the whole world seems to be like affected by something that is directly <laughs> medical. So when I went to grad school, like I was excited to learn, but also like I didn't feel this whole pressure on me to like be the next generation of somebody who's going to save people's lives from a global pandemic. Does that ever go through your mind? Like, wow, like I am going to med school to learn how to save people's lives at a time that is just so, it's so necessary that we have more medical professionals. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess sometimes it does cross my mind. And in some ways, I'm very grateful and a little kind of proud to, you know, be working in this field. But I'd say for the most part, it doesn't really occur to me that often. I think a lot of times, you know, I'm still very far removed from being an actual kind of clinical decision maker. And there's so much to do and so much to learn and so much work. I'm really just taking it day by day. So it's hard to remember that the whole world is kind of looking at the medical field because, you know, I'm just looking at my books and <laughs> looking at lectures and trying to get, get through the next day. So, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you say that now, but I can already tell that you're going to be a great doctor, if only because the last time that you were here, right, it was at the very beginning of this whole COVID-19 crisis. We had no idea what was going on. Uh, I believe we recorded in March or early April of 2020, right, just a few months into this thing. And one of my most pressing questions for you as a, uh, an aspiring doctor was, when are we going to get a vaccine? When are we going to get this, a vaccine that will help us cope with the raging pandemic? And you estimated that it would take 12 to 18 months to develop. You said that on the record on this podcast. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> Almost exactly 12 months after that episode came out, I got my first shot of Moderna. Mm -hmm. And 19 months into the pandemic, I got my third shot, the booster. Um, so I'd say your estimate was pretty spot on. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, um, 
I can't honestly take the credit for it. I was working in a medical uh, clinic, a doctor's office, and the doctors I was working for kind of said that, so I just regurgitated that. <laughs> so, but I mean, they knew what they were talking about, so it made me sound good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, last time we met, um, which was over Zoom uh, for this podcast, we did an episode all about medical ethics. Today, because we are able to do it in person, and we owe a lot of that to the development of vaccines to promote the safety of meeting in person once again, we're going to do an episode all about vaccines Mm -hmm. and um, do a podcast specifically about an episode of Deep Space Nine where Dr. Bashir develops a vaccine. Um, But before we get into the Star Trek, John, I remember asking you once what the greatest discovery in medical science was, and your answer was a toss-up between antibiotics and vaccines. So could you say a little bit more about why you rank those as the most impactful medical innovations? And as you explain this, could you also tell us what the difference is between an antibiotic and a vaccine is? Because I think there may be a little bit of confusion. Yeah, I remember you asking me this question, and I thought about it for a long time. And, you know, it's so hard to pick one single discovery in medical science, um, because there's so many, you know, one of the things I thought of was like, you know, imaging studies, any way that you can kind of like look inside the human body without cutting someone open. Mm -hmm. So like things as simple as like x-rays, right? Like we've all had x-rays done and we kind of take it for granted. Um, And that's an amazing technology that has really helped people diagnose disease and treat disease. Um, Even things like a stethoscope, right? Like every doctor carries a stethoscope (laughs) and (laughs) listens to your heart and lungs and I mean, that's an amazing way to ascertain the health of internal organs without having to slice someone open. So it's so mm-hmm. hard to say. But I really came down between antibiotics and vaccines when you think about just like the amount of human life that has been saved over the course of humanity from those two discoveries. So getting into it, I guess, so a vaccine is a, um, a preventative measure that you use to basically train your immune system to fight off a pathogen, a bacteria, or a virus that you may encounter in the future. So there are, are some vaccines that can be used therapeutically after you've like contracted a disease, but we don't have to get into that. Antibiotics are very much after you have contracted a bacterial disease, you will be given antibiotics, which are drugs that specifically target bacterial cells and kill them. So the infection doesn't spread. And of course, antibiotics can also be used prophylactically, like before, if you're going into maybe a high-risk situation or something like, I don't know, going to have a surgery and you're a high-risk candidate for an infection, maybe they'll give you antibiotics before you actually contract the disease just to prevent you from, you know, getting a severe bacterial infection. But by and large, vaccines are preventative. Antibiotics are therapeutic after you've contracted a specifically bacterial infection. Yeah, those two sound like excellent, excellent top choices for the greatest discovery in all of medical science, because like you said, they're just so powerful at influencing an entire populace, right? Um, You can get antibacterial stuff uh, at at Walgreens. Is that true? Yeah, there's a lot of over-the-counter antibacterials, um, especially like topical. So like you know, Neosporin, I think, is uh, has three common antibiotics in it. Um, so kind of a cocktail that you can just put on cuts and scrapes and stuff. 
you know, I I think I thought of those because, again, as I said, like you consider the amount of lives that have been saved, like with antibiotics, like we've all had bacterial infections. I remember when I was a kid, I had strep throat twice and it was cured with a pretty just mild course of antibiotics that we probably all take for granted. But who knows if I had lived, you know, back in the day before antibiotics, I could have died from that at the age of five and I wouldn't be here now. So, <laughs> yeah. um and obviously antibiotics, you know, we're running into some issues, especially with like superbugs and things like that. But, you know, antibiotics are still one of the most commonly used drugs in medicine today. And for good reason, because, you know, most kind of mild bacterial infections that we think are mild are just because they're easily cured by antibiotics. But, uh, you know, back in the day, they probably could have killed you. Um, and vaccines, the same thing. Um, vaccines have probably prevented countless you know infections and deaths um that we'll never know of because people never contracted them and so you know like the flu if you're vaccinated against the flu you know you have a good chance of having a very mild infection maybe not even knowing that you're infected but people still do die from the flu today and you know if there were no vaccines probably millions more people would be would be dying from infections that we think are mild now but uh, wouldn't be mild if it weren't for vaccines. Yeah, one of the questions that just keeps popping into my mind as we live through this ongoing pandemic is how many times since I got vaccinated against COVID-19 have I actually encountered COVID-19 and not noticed it because of the vaccine? Right, yeah. And also with this idea that you were talking about superbugs before in the case of bacteria, that's basically bugs learning how to evade or defeat our antibiotics and then as we see with COVID-19 mutations, we see new strains becoming better and better at evading our vaccines. It's, it almost seems like an arms race between us and the um, microbes that could do us harm. It's actually just kind of fascinating, honestly, from a scientific perspective to mm -hmm. think about the natural selection and the ecology and the amazing amount of learning that takes place in bacteria just sculpted uh, bacteria and viruses sculpted by the selection pressures that we put on it by the things that we create to, to try to defeat them right yeah and and obviously bacteria and viruses have a huge advantage over us in that their generation times are so short right mm -hmm. um and so they have the capacity to mutate very rapidly and to um you know evolve mechanisms to escape our therapies, our antibiotics, and our vaccines a lot faster than we can keep up with them a lot of the time. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a big challenge for the scientific and medical community. Well, while bacteria and viruses may have their superpower of multiplying very quickly, uh, we have a superpower too, uh, which is our brains and our ability mm -hmm. to use the scientific method to figure out what exactly is causing us to be sick and to develop treatments and vaccines uh, to stop people from dying from these things. So that is exactly what Dr. Julian Bashir did in this classic Deep Space Nine episode that we rewatched called The Quickening. Mm -hmm. um, so in this episode, Bashir uh, journeys to a world in the Gamma Quadrant on sort of just a survey mission. They had just sort of started really going into the Gamma Quadrant. The Dominion War hadn't happened yet, but they're sort of feeling their way through this new space. And they find an entire population on a planet that has been infected with a disease that they call the Blight. 
and this sickness causes blue lesions on the skin of the infected that suddenly turn red during the so-called quickening, which occurs just before the virus kills the individual in a usually very painful way. Mm-hmm. So while they were on this planet, um, Dr. Bashir and Dax don't really seem to be at risk at all. They don't show any symptoms. They don't seem to be contracting the virus Mm -hmm. um, that's causing the blight. So there's no evidence that the blight is transmissible through air the way that COVID-19 is. (laughs) 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 At least they don't have to deal with that. Um, uh, But it seems that it is passed in the line of descent from parents to offspring on this planet. So basically Mm -hmm. every single child that is born on this planet from an infected individual will also have the blight. Uh, And so I was wondering, you know, today we are so used to viruses traveling through coughs and sneezes, um, but I don't really know too much about viruses that are transmitted through birth. Is that actually a thing? Yeah, that is definitely a thing. Yeah, um, there certainly are viruses that are transmitted through birth. Vertical transmission, they say, which is kind of from mom to child, as opposed to horizontal transmission, which is kind of person to person, more like COVID. But yeah, definitely. So um, there are viruses that can cross the placenta, certainly. Um, I know HIV, for example, is a classic one. HIV is obviously bloodborne. It infects uh, white blood cells, uh, T cells, helper T cells, and is in your blood and can cross the placenta. And once it does, the baby will have HIV and will be born with HIV. So that's a, you know, that is a serious prenatal medical issue that needs to be accounted for with HIV positive mothers. And, um, you know, there's other ways too that uh, viruses can be transmitted through birth. I know like herpes, genital herpes, isn't so much bloodborne that virus infects kind of mucosal cells and various mucosal surfaces. So the genitalia, the mouth, the lips, I'm sure uh, most of us are familiar with that. And I don't know if it crosses the placenta. It's not classically how you think about it being transmitted in birth. But for example, if a mother has an active lesion, genital lesion, and then during the process of labor, the, the baby can actually become infected with herpes viruses. And sometimes classically, I think it's described as, you know, babies being born with herpes lesions on their mouth and on their face. And that comes from, you know, through the birth canal, basically. And so that's another way that viruses can be transmitted through pregnancy, not necessarily through the placenta, but through another mechanism. And then also, you know, through breast milk, tons of things get secreted through breast milk, including little tiny viruses. I know HIV is another classic example of that. Um, So to answer your question, yeah, there are tons of viruses that are transmitted either through birth or around birth, before birth, during pregnancy or after birth through breastfeeding. So yeah, certainly. Wow. Fascinating. So another difference between the blight and COVID-19 is that the blight was manufactured by the Dominion. So something really mean (laughs) that the Dominion decided to do is that they would punish this entire planet, which had uh, disobeyed them in some way. And uh, so therefore, the blight is a a bioweapon that the Dominion implanted in this population. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that is responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic, on the other hand, it seems to be a natural pathogen, uh, to the best of our knowledge. Of course, there are some theories about maybe some of the mutations to its effectiveness at you know being contracted by humans was created in the lab. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty speculative at this point, so we won't try to go into that too much. Um, but the best scientific knowledge 
says right now that COVID-19 was caused by a natural pathogen. And mm-hmm. we see a lot of coronaviruses naturally. They cause the common colds. There was SARS, original SARS um, back in the day. I remember people being freaked out by that. Um, so it seems that the facts point to that COVID-19 was the result of a spillover from an animal host. What do you think are the implications of that origin of this virus for us? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess the Dominion had not heard of the Geneva Agreement, huh? Or biological <laughs> warfare, I guess. But yeah. Anyways, yeah, that's a that's a terrible thing to do. But anyways, yeah. Um, yeah, it seems like you know I'm obviously not an expert in this field, but it seems to be the case that human involvement or movement into kind of natural settings is heavily associated with uh, increasing contact with pathogens or organisms, animals, or plants or who knows what that harbors different viruses and bacteria and fungi that humanity has never seen before. And that, you know, directly corresponds to increasing endemics and pandemics and uh, disease, uh, human disease. Um, So yeah, there's lots of examples, right? So HIV, which we talked about earlier, uh, seems to have come from monkeys, I think, right in Africa. Um, And this newest flavor of the COVID uh, virus, SARS-CoV-2, right? That seems to have come from bats in Asia. So, you know, it's a it's an area of ongoing research. And like I said, I'm not an expert, but, you know, it's, it stands to reason that the more we kind of go into natural settings and deforest and kind of hunt game in these areas, the more that humans are exposed to the pathogens that those animals contain or harbor, And because it's such a global world now, you know, those folks travel and, you know, come in contact with other people and, you know, it spreads like wildfire. And before you know it, the entire world is infected or, you know, harbors a a novel virus that humanity has never seen before. So it's a really big issue. Yeah, something that our generation is going to have to, I think, continue to battle with, not just in the case of new COVID variants, but the next one that comes, because like you said, we are continuing to expand into natural settings uh, as global warming intensifies. I think that uh, there's concerns that there may be viruses that have survived in these like tundra-like environments Mm -hmm. that were just frozen there, Um, time capsules from ancient biosphere that may reanimate um, as as these things uh, are able to emerge once their icy habitats are thawed. Um, But, you know, whether or not that exact scenario comes true, I think the general principle that we must be ever vigilant against these types of uh, new pathogens is just something that will become a reality of our lives. Mm and so we've got to learn about them and we have to study them. And that's exactly what Dr. Bashir does in this episode. So he sets up a clinic on this planet and brings his fancy medical equipment to bear against this problem. The first thing that Dr. Bashir does to learn about the pathogen is to run a, quote, complete biospectral analysis <laughs> on an asymptomatic individual. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's a lot of technobabble there. Uh, given your biomedical expertise, what do you imagine Bashir's biospectral analysis <laughs> is doing? <laughs> that is a tough question, yeah. Um, so if Bashir was going into a place and you're looking for a brand new virus that you've never encountered before, I guess the the first thing you would want to do probably is maybe just do a culture, try and isolate the virus. So 
if I remember, these folks kind of had these lesions on their face, right? So that would probably entail taking like a cell sample from those lesions or maybe like a biopsy and then growing those cells in essence, growing the virus and then trying to isolate the virus. And maybe you could try and visualize it using like electron microscopy. Viruses are way too small to see with just light microscopy. You could probably see like cells through light microscopy, but you're not you're not going to see the little viruses inside them. But maybe like, you know, electron microscopy, take a picture of it and see what it looks like. That can give you some clues to what kind of family the virus comes from and things like that. And then, you know, in terms of a biospectral analysis, that, yeah, so you probably are wanting to look at many different characteristics of, of the virus, especially if it's a, a brand new virus. You have no idea what you're looking for. Um, I imagine you would want to characterize the virus in a number of ways. Number one being what kind of genome does it have? Is it a DNA virus? Is it an RNA virus? Um, that would probably entail doing genomic sequencing. So, grow a cell culture, isolate the virus, lyse the virus, take out its DNA, probably PCR to amplify it, then sequence it and, you know, get its entire sequence. That would be really helpful, probably. Um, other characteristics you off the bat you would probably want to look for, is it an enveloped virus or is it naked virus? So some viruses kind of have a lipid envelope around them that kind of helps protect them from, you know, host defenses. So that would probably determine what kind of therapies you would use. So, you know, just figure that out as well. And then probably also look, yeah, try and characterize the proteins in its capsid. So look for, you know, important proteins that the virus uses that maybe you can target as, uh, you know, therapeutic sites. So, you know, for example, what we're talking so much about COVID, um, like the COVID spike protein, you know, is how it, encounters host cells and enters the host cell. So, you know, look for important proteins, binding sites that uh, are on its capsid that you could potentially create a therapy against, maybe. <laughs> well, thanks for pulling apart all that techno babble for us. Um, one thing that occurred to me is, you know, it's not exactly the word that we would use in planetary science, but um, a lot of planetary missions use what's called a mass spectrometer. So maybe a biospectral analysis includes this type of mass spectrometry, mm, yeah. um, which is basically you grind up a bunch of stuff or you uh, volatilize it somehow, maybe you heat it up, and then you send it through a thing that measures the mass of organic molecules uh, and it does this by maybe like the time of flight so heavier things will move a lot slower than lighter things and through this mass spectrometry you can sort of get to know the chemical constituents of the gunk that you picked up from another world maybe the same type of thing kind of applies maybe this is one of the many experiments that fall under Bashir's biospectral analysis is to grind up some of this organic goo and then figure out what's in it by running a mass spectrometer yeah, probably. He's probably doing all of the things we said and more. And <laughs> frankly, it's amazing that he's trained in all those techniques and able to treat patients. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is just an ongoing thing with Star Trek. It's where like the, the chief medical officer is like an expert in all the medical disciplines and like medical research. Right. <laughs> At the same time, like Spock, you know, as the chief yeah. science officer, he knows every single domain of science there is. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but that's why I guess they're such inspiring individuals. Um, 
John, you talked about isolating the virus. That is like exactly what Bashir does. Um, so he isolates the virus. Um, he analyzes its molecular structure to look for binding sites to tailor an antigen. This is a direct quote from the episode. There it is. Let me see. What's happened? We've isolated the virus. Is that a good thing? It means we can start analyzing its molecular structure, look for binding sites so we can tailor an antigen. In other words, yes, it's a very good thing. That sounds like just as much technobabble as the, the previous book that we said <laughs> that, we, that we were discussing. But uh, I think it's actually real science, right? It is. Yeah, definitely. I, I think he might have had a slight misspeak oh. here. Uh, very mild. But, you know, I, uh, when he says tailor an antigen, um, I am a little unsure what he meant by that i think he meant tailor something to a viral antigen usually mm. when you use the word antigen you know that's something on the virus that elicits kind of an immune response but either way he you know he, what he's trying to do here is clear and what he's trying to do is tailor some biological agent that will bind to the viral antigen and therefore be helpful right and so that is helpful for a number of reasons there's a, a number of reasons that you may want to consider doing that one could be therapeutic. So, for example, you could tailor an antibody that binds to a viral antigen and stops it from accomplishing whatever it's supposed to do. So, for example, with uh, coronavirus, we talked about that spike protein. That spike protein is on the viral capsid. It binds to an enzyme on human cells called angiotensin-converting enzyme. That's not really important. That enzyme is found in a lot of places, but predominantly lung tissue, which is why COVID is a, you know, a respiratory virus. So the spike mm. protein binds to this enzyme, and then that allows the virus to enter the host cell. So theoretically, you could think of a scenario where let me tailor a biological agent, maybe an antibody to that spike protein. That's the antigen, the spike protein being the antigen, and that will prevent the virus from entering the host cell. So that is a reason you may want to tailor something to an antigen. It could be therapeutic. Uh, it could also be diagnostic, right? I mean, he might simply be saying, you know, I need to figure out if this antigen I'm looking for is actually on that virus. So you could take the spike protein again. You could do something like fluorescence microscopy, where you take an antibody against the spike protein and you kind of label it with a fluorescent molecule that will glow so you can see it. And then you'll you know, put that antibody into a cell culture, say, that is known to be infected with the virus. So a sample from one of those asymptomatic patients that he was talking about. And then if your antibody, your fluorescent antibody binds to the spike protein, say, it will glow, right? And you can see that you can visualize that with a microscope. And if it doesn't glow, you know that that virus doesn't contain that protein that you're looking for. So it could be a diagnostic tool as well. He has an idea of maybe something that he thinks is there, and he's trying to just make sure before he, you know, designs a therapy against it. Ah, I see. Okay. So, so basically when we take an antigen COVID test, these new tests that have come out recently, and the tests that we took uh, before our gathering to make sure that we were negative for COVID, that's basically looking for one of these pieces of the virus that elicits an immune response in our bodies. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, that's so cool. Mm -hmm. Wow. Clever human beings. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of clever human beings, eventually Dr. Bashir develops a potential cure for this blight virus. 
and he administers this cure to a bunch of people with the blight. But while at his clinic, suddenly their suffering seems to accelerate as a response to the cure that he administered. And when Bashir scans one of these individuals, he finds that the EM, or electromagnetic fields, from his instruments were causing the virus to mutate rapidly. And we're in the middle of a pandemic, as we keep on saying, (laughs) where we are seeing wave after wave of different viral mutations. We had Delta this summer, Omicron this winter. Can you tell us a little bit more about viral mutations in general and could electromagnetic radiation be an actual cause of it? Yeah, great question. I think we talked about this a little bit before. Viruses, just like anything, any organism, mutates and evolves and responds to the selective pressures in its environment and does so very rapidly because, you know, the generation time, like we said, is so short. And they will mutate in ways to increase their ability to replicate, basically, right? Just like anything. And so I think we've seen with this Omicron variant that it, it seems to be have a much higher infectious capacity than previous mutant forms we've seen like Delta. And that is probably a, a response to the selective pressures that we're putting on it with, uh, you know, vaccines. So we're training our bodies to make antibodies uh, against the coronavirus. And so you could imagine the coronavirus would mutate in a way that increases its ability to escape from these vaccines. So whatever antibodies that we are producing, probably, you know, against the spike protein based on how the vaccines that are currently being used work, you know, you can imagine that there's selective pressure on these viruses to mutate that spike protein so that they can evade those antibodies that we are training our bodies to make. And those viruses that do that have a competitive advantage over viruses that don't do that. And so over over generations, which is a very brief amount of time for humans, they become the majority of the viral population. And that's why we see a spike in this new Omicron variant. Uh, Whether or not electromagnetic radiation is a cause of uh, viral um, mutations, I don't think it is at all. I'm obviously not entirely qualified to say that, but I'm fairly confident that the mutations are due to kind of the selective pressures we put on them and not from electromagnetic radiation of any sort. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I guess what could be said is that in our cells, perhaps electromagnetic radiation like UV light could cause our our skin cells, for instance, to mutate in a way. And that's why we kind of put on sunscreen. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. But in our in our lungs, (laughs) it's not like there's a lot of UV light (laughs) (laughs) causing the viruses to mutate. They just have a very, very high mutation rate because that is how they adapt to these new pressures that we're putting on them. Uh, I think it's also key to, to note that the virus isn't planning or to mutate mm-hmm. in a way that like it can evade our vaccines. It didn't consciously choose that. But I think you explained it very well where you said those that do mutate in a way that can evade our vaccines will end up being the ones that proliferate the fastest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's the case that the Dominion sort of engineered this virus, though, this blight virus, to actually respond to electromagnetic radiation 
so that if a doctor <laughs> came to this planet and tried to bring modern 24th century medical science to bear, they would just make the situation worse. So maybe that's the way that we can, in our heads. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. It's not entirely unplausible. Yeah, certainly. Like, obviously, we don't know the electromagnetic radiation field that Dr. Bashir set up. It's probably something crazy that, you know, <laughs> super science fiction in the future type of stuff. But yeah, yeah who knows? Maybe some they engineered it so what we think is pretty modern visible light or something interacts with it and kind of behaves the way that uv light behaves to our cells and makes it damages its dna and causes it to mutate super rapidly who knows yeah could be yeah that's a really good point there because in order to cause a mutation it's actually you're breaking a chemical bond right and mm -hmm. so so the the energy of the radiation needs to be a sufficient amount of energy and so for for us it's uv light um, that, that breaks the bonds in DNA. And so for maybe some clever evil Dominion scientist <laughs> made it so that whatever rays can actually penetrate into a blight victim, I guess, you know, it can't necessarily be any old garden variety visible light because there's plenty of like sunlight on that planet. <laughs> True, yeah. But whatever like radio frequency or microwave frequency Dr. Bashir's instruments were doing was like just the right frequency to make this virus mutate because it was engineered in such a capacity. Yeah. <laughs> that clever Dominion scientist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So let's now turn to the character named Trevian. Um, so on this planet, there is a hospital run by a man named Trevian. And instead of curing individuals with the blight, because he obviously can't do that with the medical technology that he has, Trevian basically sets up a clinic that helps ease people's passing when they quicken by offering them a very fast and relatively painless death by mm -hmm. poison mm -hmm. and uh, basically makes a whole ceremony where th that person's uh, loved ones gather around and mm -hmm. witness their death. Um, this is basically a form of assisted suicide, which is now legal in certain parts of the world, including in our home state of California, where we're recording this podcast. Um, so the last time you were on the podcast, John, we discussed the four pillars of medical ethics. And the idea of assisted suicide, which now that it comes to think of it, that was exactly what we were talking about before, that TNG episode. Worf was basically um, oh, yeah. injured, mm -hmm. and he wanted Riker to help him, essentially, with assisted kind suicide. Of, yeah. um, so this episode also has that theme, except the assisted suicide is slightly different in that it's an already dying individual who wants to escape the mm -hmm. painful mm -hmm. last days of their life. But in any case... Assisted suicide of any variety seems to put two of those four pillars of medical ethics in each other's way. One of those is patient autonomy, and the other is, of course, do no harm. They seem to be at odds. So Bashir, in this episode, seems to be decidedly on the do no harm side, <laughs> because he is so appalled at Trevian's practice of helping people die, because he's right. like, you're supposed to be curing people, not killing them. <laughs> What do you make of this difficult moral situation, John? This is a very tricky subject, definitely, with a lot of valid points of view. I guess the way I think about it is, um, you know, obviously you don't want to do harm to your patients, but ask yourself the question, would keeping the patient alive cause more harm than it saves right so by keeping that person alive are you inflicting upon them tremendous suffering and suffering to their family or maybe a financial cost to to staying alive being on ventilators or something right is that 
level of suffering actually doing harm to the patient? And would you be doing less harm by just helping them to die? And, you know, I, I think there's some validity to that. You know, a lot of times, like, you know, if you are maybe in an ICU, say, with a terminally ill patient, a lot of times these folks, you know, they don't look great. They have tubes sticking out of them in all kinds of places. They have ventilators all the way down their mouth and into their lungs. They can't even breathe. They can't interact with their family and friends. And when people come in to see them, they see basically a loved one who almost looks like a corpse and has, you know, all these fluids coming out of them and needles stuck in them. And, you know, is that any way to live? Is that a good way to keep someone alive? Sometimes uh, family members and patients themselves express the desire not to experience that, right? I don't want to see my grandpa, say, kind of wired up like that. You know, I don't want that to be my last memory of him. And grandpa might, might not want that either. So, you know, I think that's a valid point of view. And then, of course, you know, like you said, there's the patient autonomy side too, right? And like, so grandpa doesn't want that, right? And patient autonomy is something we have to take very seriously, there are certain instances when autonomy is revoked, like if you're a minor or you kind of don't have proper decision-making capacities, if you know, you're in an altered state, a mental state, altered mental state. But, you know, if a person is, you know, perfectly capable of making an informed decision, then should they not have the right to choose their own healthcare outcomes and their healthcare plan? And if that entails kind of dying on their own terms, you know, is that not a valid choice that they should be able to make and I kind of think that 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 it is a valid choice and you know they should be allowed to do that I think Bashir was definitely his problem I think was that Trevine was not offering them an alternative and of course in the episode um, if you watch it they had kind of lost all hope because you know they had very limited supplies so you know it's it's maybe both had persuasive arguments but I think that's where Bashir kind of was coming from offering people death without offering them any sort of alternative he didn't like that right right and as we see in the episode trevian isn't an evil person i think Mm -hmm. he was doing what he could to ease the pain of his population with the resources that he had and once he found out that he had an alternative once bashir brought him this eventual treatment trevian shows that he's a really really compassionate person You found a cure. It's not a cure. It's a vaccine. Every pregnant woman should be inoculated with it as soon as possible. It won't help them, but it will protect their babies. Our children won't have the blight. The vaccine isn't difficult to make, but seeing that everybody gets it will be a huge task. Oh, not a task. A privilege. Can you show me how to make it? I was hoping you'd ask that. So let's talk about the the end of this episode. Um, It looks pretty bleak, honestly. Bashir is very near giving up on his research when he finally makes this breakthrough discovery. Although his cure for the blight does not work, and especially does not work in adults with the quickening, it will pass through the placenta of a pregnant individual, sort of just like how the virus passes through the placenta, um, as you were talking about earlier. And when this 
cure passes through the placenta, it renders the fetus immune to the blight, and the newborn baby is born without any lesions and without any trace of the virus whatsoever. So his breakthrough means that this antigen therapy that he's discovered is not actually a cure for the virus, it's a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so when Bashir tells Trevian this vaccine isn't difficult to make, but seeing that everyone gets it will be a huge task, <laughs> Trevian replies, oh, not a task, a privilege. <laughs> uh, well, we're seeing uh, the trials and tribulations of vaccine delivery today with the COVID-19 pandemic because it seems like some individuals don't see the COVID-19 vaccine as a privilege, mm -hmm. but rather a threat to their freedoms. So, you know, John, you've been in the medical fields for over a year now. You've encountered individuals who are vaccine hesitant, and you've had some difficult conversations with them in the clinic trying to inform them about the vaccine and convince them to take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to share what those kinds of conversations are like? Yeah, sure. I guess, uh, you know, one thing that has kind of stuck out to me is that there's a lot of reasons people aren't getting vaccinated or maybe hesitant to get vaccinated. And it's not necessarily that they're all like uneducated or something. There's tons of reasons to be moral, religious, ethical, or, you know, safety reasons. And I would say by far and away, the most common concern people have is the safety and the side effects. Um, saying, you know, the vaccine was kind of rushed and we're not sure about um, how safe it is. Um, and, you know, I think that's a valid concern. Um, and I, I respect the, you know, patients who are a little, you know, hesitant because of that. Um, I will say, you know, the vaccine's been out for a while. It seems to be very safe. It's been approved by the FDA and there aren't significant side effects Obviously, some people have like allergies to certain ingredients in in any vaccine or in fact, any medication or really anything you ever put in your body. So, you know, to say it's 100% safe, nothing's 100% safe, but it is as safe as, you know, we can, we can make it. And if you haven't gotten vaccinated because that's your primary concern, you know, I would highly encourage you to go get the vaccine or speak to a pharmacist or a doctor because um, the evidence kind of has, you know, shown that, you know, it's pretty safe for practically anyone to get. But there's a lot of other reasons, you know, I've come across tons of people who have different reasons for not getting vaccinated. Some people, you know, honestly, have never been vaccinated against anything. And it's like not really a part of their culture. They just like, never get a flu shot, never got chicken pox shot. Um, and so you run to people like that, too. And they're just like, no, I'm not going to get the COVID shot because I have never gotten a shot for anything. And then, you know, you just say things like, well, here's the data. You know, the vaccines save lives. They're very safe. You know, would you like to get the COVID shot? And would you like to get all the other shots that you're due for? Um, a lot of times those folks are hard to <laughs> hard to convince because it's just kind of not part of their their upbringing. And in terms of, you know, having conversations with with patients, there's been a lot of different strategies that I've seen clinicians use. Um, one that really stuck out to me was um, I've been working at the VA for like the past year and a half now. And uh, one thing that uh, we often tell our patients is that getting the vaccine is just one more way to do a duty to your nation and to the world, really, and to your fellow Americans. It's one more way that you can protect your fellow Americans. 
And, you know, I truly believe that I, I take that to heart. I think that, you know, it's, it's my personal right to get the vaccine to protect myself. But I also have a duty to protect those around me to protect my family, my friends, people I care about my neighbors, and really just our entire nation and planet. Um, so I, I really take that to heart. And I hope that other people do too. And lastly, you know, like, I would just say, like, I wouldn't ask you to get vaccinated if I weren't comfortable with it, right? So I'm vaccinated, and I wouldn't ask you to do something that I'm not comfortable doing. That sometimes seems to help. So, you know, I think that when you talk to people who are hesitant to get the vaccine, it's oftentimes helpful to appeal to their emotions more so than like regurgitating stats to them. I mean, you can read about the infectivity rates of COVID on the CDC website or a poster. You can read about how dangerous it is, how many millions of people have died. But if that didn't convince you, then me regurgitating those stats <laughs> to you probably not going to convince you either. So I find that, you know, appealing to people's kind of emotions or duty is a, is a good way to kind of get them thinking about getting vaccinated. Thank you so much for sharing those conversations that you've had and a little bit of that experience. I really resonated with several things that you said there. Um, the emotional appeal, I think that, you know, vaccine hesitancy, but also like this whole movement against intellectualism and science and mm. facts, even, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a lot of scientists are just like, well, why don't we just publish it more? Why don't we just like <laughs> beat people over the head with all the facts about climate change or whatever it is? Uh, and I, I agree that that's not the way to do it, that we need to appeal to people's emotions because we are emotional creatures. Mm -hmm. And like you said, one way to do that is by sharing with people how interconnected they are with everybody else. And it's so true, especially in the case of COVID, where a decision that we make for ourselves has not just implications for our own health, but for the health of literally everybody that we meet throughout our lives. Right. Um, and so realizing that we're so connected is profound and it's moving. And it's also perhaps the key to trying to end this pandemic as quickly as possible. So thank you again for sharing these yeah. conversations. Yeah. And I think, you know, just putting, like you said, putting science more out there and making science kind of like cool, quote unquote, or like just more accessible to like the average person. And I mean, I think that's what you're accomplishing here with your podcast, right? Like, the average listener and the average just person um, who probably isn't too exposed to science and doesn't kind of view science as being cool or whatever, like just putting it more out there. So more people every day encounter scientific news and it's more part of kind of our common culture. I think it is a good way to do that. And these platforms are a great way to kind of put it out there without being like, oh, I'm hitting you over the head with just facts and stuff because no one wants to hear that. Right? <laughs> we want to listen to cool podcasts or TV shows or personalities, right? So that's a great way to do it. Oh, thanks, John. Well, I've learned so much from you today about vaccines and being in the medical field and COVID-19 in general by talking through this episode of Star Trek with you about how Dr. Bashir did it um, in the 24th century on a strange new world uh, and relating it back to everything that we are seeing around us in the present day. I have just one last question for you. It's a question that I've actually been asking all of my guests in 2021 because it's been a hard couple of years mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's difficult to see an optimistic future. And, and one thing that people turn to to look for an optimistic future is to 
watch Star Trek. Um, so I figured that I'd ask all of my guests for one thing that brings them hope about the future. I guess in the context of, you know, our discussion today about the pandemic and viruses, I think one thing that I have hoped for in the future, kind of as a direct cause of the pandemic, is that more people are kind of being forced to have more awareness about health in their daily lives. And it's becoming kind of more a part of our daily thinking. And so what I mean, like, for example, is that, you know, some folks who have never considered getting vaccinated for anything for COVID or otherwise before are now thinking about it, right? Like, I can't imagine there's a person on earth who hasn't thought about vaccines in the last year, right? Like we've kind of been slapped in the face with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've seen some people who were, you know, never gotten a vaccine before now starting to get vaccinated for things or, and, you know, it's not their fault that they weren't getting vaccinated. It's just like I said, maybe it wasn't just part of their culture. They just weren't brought up like that. And now they're being exposed to that kind of information and they're choosing to get vaccinated or learn a little bit more about their health, which I think is awesome. That's super great. And likewise, you know, folks are kind of practicing more sanitary habits. It's just more in our, on our mind um, to take care of our health. And that gives me a lot of hope for the future. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being on Strange New Worlds again. Of course. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah. And um, happy 2022. Happy 2022. That was medical student John Wall on viruses and vaccines, as seen through the Deep Space Nine episode, The Quickening. Watching this episode again, I was struck by Dr. Julian Bashir's unwavering dedication to finding a vaccine for a mysterious virus that was afflicting people he didn't even know. Bashir showed so much selflessness, so much resolve in this episode, fighting through doubt, and adversity, and failure. He could have just quit, said he tried, and booked it back to the Alpha Quadrant. But he didn't. He persevered. And in the end, he saved an entire planet from a horrendous disease. You know, we have our very own Bashirs right here on planet Earth. There are real-life human heroes who spend their days developing and distributing vaccines that save countless lives. We have doctors who mend and heal us. And as a big brother, I am so incredibly proud of John for dedicating his career to helping those in need and for putting in all the hard work to realize that dream. We can honor everyone in the medical professions by doing what's right. When it comes to vaccines, the needs of the many are the needs of the one, because we are all in this together. Let's make 2022 the best year that it can possibly be. I wish you all good health, prosperity, and endless curiosity. Until next time, see you out there.
I started like a, I was like running on in that one answer and I was like this sounded a lot better in my head. <laughs> <laughs>